Susan Moran. And I'm Leslie Dodson. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 28th, 2016. Coming up, Marianne Colley of the Butterfly Pavilion in Westminster will discuss why we should care about pollinators, even the not-so-cute ones. Well, they might sting, but they're critical to Colorado and you. And we'll hear about do-it-yourself biology from Dr. Heather Underwood of Denver Biolabs. It's where biology meets engineering, computer science, design, and creativity. So before we begin with a look at some of the recent news in science, I want to welcome Leslie Dodson for returning to How on Earth to co-host. Leslie was a longtime television journalist before getting a Ph.D. in Technology, Media, and Society at the University of Colorado Boulder. So welcome back, Dr. Dodson. Thank you very much, Susie. Uh, For the first headline, we have something that might make bacon lovers happy. Drugs that lower cholesterol levels, also known as statins, are some of the world's most widely used and profitable medicines, even though the side effects of taking statins can include impaired cognition and muscle damage. There are also questions about whether these powerful drugs really reduce heart attack risk. So, for those who enjoy their bacon and cheese omelets, new research from a University of South Florida professor and an international team of experts contends that, at least for older people, lowering cholesterol does nothing to reduce heart attack risk. In fact, people over the age of 60 with high levels of a cholesterol known as LDLC, or low-density lipoprotein, live just as long and often longer than their peers with low levels of this same cholesterol, and they have less cardiovascular disease. To reach their findings, the researchers analyzed past studies involving more than 68,000 senior-aged participants. In addition to their findings about heart disease, the researchers point out that high levels of cholesterol are associated with a lower rate of neurological disorders, such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. Other studies have suggested that high LDLC may protect against some often fatal diseases such as cancer and infectious diseases, and that having low LDLC may in fact increase one's susceptibility to those diseases. These findings about cholesterol and longevity appear online this month in the open access version of the British Medical Journal. So enjoy your brie, Susie. (laughs) I sure will. On the science calendar this week, check out the new multimedia exhibit at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, or NCAR, in Boulder. It's basically a hands-on lesson about climate change, and it's aimed at educating adults as well as kids. The exhibit uses touch screens and interactive games to demonstrate how the climate system functions, and it also explores how altering that system affects society as well as the natural world. You'll find audio stories of community observations about changes in local climates, and you can play games that visualize the future benefits of living green. The exhibit is open seven days a week. NCAR offers public tours at noon every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And the exhibit is permanent, so come whenever. And for more summer science fun, you have until August 7th to check out a very cool exhibition called Robot Revolution at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Kids and adults can interact with a cutting-edge collection of rarely shown robots from around the world. So, for example, you can control an all-terrain crawling robot, or you can face off with a tic-tac-toe plane bot, 
or if you're an up-and-coming or even an experienced poker player, you can challenge a robot to a game of 21. Or you know what? If you're just in need of a little lovin', you can feel a therapeutic baby seal robot react to your touch. For more information on Robot Revolution, go to dmns.org. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. Late June, when gardens are in full bloom, it's a good time to think about pollinators. Honeybees, wasps, butterflies, hummingbirds, and others depend on many flowering plants for nectar. And we depend on these pollinators for much of our diet, for that matter, from almonds to apples to blueberries. You may know by now that some of these pollinator populations are facing severe threats here in Colorado as well as nationally and globally. Scientists have been on the show in recent months discussing some of the stressors from habitat destruction to a controversial class of insecticides called neonicotinoids. One place close to home that's a popular destination for lovers of butterflies, as well as tarantulas for that matter, is the Butterfly Pavilion in Westminster. Today, we're joined by Marianne Colley. She's the Vice President of Science and Conservation at the Pavilion, which has been conducting research and education campaigns aimed at protecting pollinators in our backyards, for that matter. Marianne, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start. I know you brought some really nice packets of seeds. They look like pollinator-friendly seeds they into are. the studio. What, what are those? So Butterfly Pavilion right now is focused on our PACE initiative, which is public awareness through, uh, excuse me, pollinator awareness through conservation and education. And we are doing a seed campaign right now for pollinators. So everybody who comes to Butterfly Pavilion will get a packet of seeds that creates um, critical habitat for pollinators here in Colorado. So they're all blooming. It's not just flowers, right? But particular kinds of flowers? It's a lot of forbs, so definitely a lot of flowers because those pollinators definitely need the nectar as well as the pollen to complete their life cycles and to be healthy themselves. And it keeps Colorado beautiful as well. The more flowers that we have here, the more our state just really looks the way we want it to. So not just for drought purposes, but Kentucky bluegrass is not the best way to go, at least for sprawling lawns, right? (laughs) Certainly not for pollinators. Natives natives are critical, and all of the seeds that we are handing out are native to Colorado. Well, that's great. I think we may plant some at KGNU as well. (laughs) So bring us right to Butterfly Pavilion. I know a lot of us as kids and parents have been there. You've got things like tarantulas as well as butterflies, but give us a sense of place. Like, What what is at the Butterfly Pavilion? Sure. Well, Butterfly Pavilion is an invertebrate zoo, so we really focus on those animals that are often not even considered animals. So those those anim- spineless things. Those spineless wonders is what we have. <laughs> so we might not have uh, charismatic megafauna, but we have more species than most zoos have. So we have an ability to really showcase the diversity of how amazing um, the 97% of animals, which are invertebrates on our planet, are. So we are able to really take our visitors to another world, a smaller world, and show the the amazing diversity and characteristics of these animals. So beyond the public education, you're also doing some significant science research. Where where is it focusing now on the pollinators given all the stressors? Sure. So we are definitely focused on um, doing some important work for pollinators and for their habitat. So it really has to go hand in hand. Two projects particularly that we're working on is the Colorado Butterfly Monitoring Project. So we're truly monitoring what's going on with our 
butterfly populations because butterflies are environmental indicators. When butterflies start going away, we start to see that there's, there's probably another stressor or an, another issue that we need to look at. So we're monitoring butterflies across the state of and Colorado. And are you monitoring them by tagging or how do you actually monitor butterflies? So GPS tags, I take it. No, no GPS tags. We're actually, um, it's a citizen science program. And so we are training our volunteers to go out work specific transects in specific areas and they go six to ten times a year and are monitoring visually so it's it's um it's a really great opportunity for the community to get involved in what's going on with butterflies in, in so, their backyard so they're literally counting them in a very specific area correct and hoping not to double count too much those well, things move around pretty quickly <laughs> <laughs> we definitely um we consider errors <laughs> in in the study mm -hmm. So, and we can get to that later, but how other people can, can sure, participate. Mm -hmm. um, so first, why is the focus on, well, the invertebrates? I guess you can't study everything under the sun. You can't study everything, but invertebrates are really the backbone, if you will, even, they, even though they don't have one, of, um, of habitats. And so without the invertebrates at that base level, you're not going to have the world that you are used to seeing today. So the food web, the food chain is really... Um, dependent upon some of these smaller animals and so without them we won't have the birds the plants and some of the bigger species that we see running around here in Colorado. Boy, so let's get down to some of the specifics of the species so in Colorado what are some of the ones that you're focusing on because they're really imperiled? So we're really right now Butterfly Pavilion is really focused on pollinators so we're looking at butterflies we're looking at native bees we're looking at honeybees as well as um, flies and beetles. So the beetles, <laughs> I like it. But well, so of the butterflies, are particular species more at risk now here in Colorado? I mean, monarchs are globally. Yes, monarchs definitely have um, a spotlight on them because of their migration. In Colorado, we're not in a major migratory route for monarchs, but monarchs do occur here native, natively and naturally. And so definitely habitat is what we're really focusing on. So not one particular butterfly per se, but the habitat that supports all the butterflies as well as all of the bees. So if we can ensure that we're creating healthy habitats, then we're creating healthy habitats for not just one type of butterfly, but we're creating healthy habitats for hundreds and thousands of different species of pollinators as well as other animals. I know some in conservation biology call it saving the stage, not just saving the actors. Absolutely. So you're saying, all right, there's the Endangered Species Act that approaches individual ones, but here's why we need to go for the whole net and look at the habitat itself, it sounds like, That's right? right. That's right. So for those who really love butterflies, so if, the, if it's not a major migratory route to what, Mexico, I take Correct. it for the, for the monarchs here, what are some of the ones they can see or if they plant some cool seeds and get their garden going, they could see? Well, you'll definitely see monarchs, but you'll see them a little bit later in the season. But um, the cabbage white butterflies, there's a lot of different kinds of sulfurs, which are the yellows that are flying around. Mm -hmm. The western tiger swallowtail, the black swallowtail. You're going to see a lot of butterfly diversity in the, the next couple of days even. Um, with the rains coming, we're going to see more blossoms and you're going to see more butterfly activity. So the healthier the habitat as well. So if you can get into an open space or if you do plant some of your own seeds and create your own pollinator habitat, you're going to, you're, if you grow it, they will come. I love that phrase. <laughs> Not just for highways, if you build it, they will come, but right. <laughs> get those gardens going. Um, and where, including Butterfly Pavilion, but more broadly with research, what have been some of the more successful 
approaches, and particularly that we see here in Colorado that are helping to save the, either the habitat for these invertebrate pollinators or the pollinators themselves? Well, there are a lot of organizations out there that are really focused in on pollinators, like Butterfly Pavilion, there's the Xerxes Society, there's also the National Wildlife Federation, as well as USDA. USDA is really focused on pollinators because of agriculture. $15 billion worth of, of agriculture is affected by honeybees and native bees. So um, there's a lot being done. Meaning out there that we right couldn't now. have that food without those pollinators Correct. bringing them to us. Correct. It mm -hmm. would it would really change the way we see our world without those pollinators. Right, and huge cash crops. Absolutely. So a huge economic boon huge or bust, impact. right? Mm -hmm. What almonds, walnuts, apples, and more. All the big ones? There's there's a ton. Of course, there's the wind pollinated things like wheat and corn um, that would sustain us, but we wouldn't have the diversity of our food if we didn't have pollinators. Boy, so for listeners, and I know some people know some about the honeybees and others, but what are some key takeaways or what are some messages you really want people to know about and an and action that they can take? Sure. Well, the things that really are impacting pollinators right now, I call them the four Ps, pesticides, pathogens, parasites, and poor nutrition. So some of the things that can happen um, just in your own backyard is, like I mentioned before, planting your own habitat garden, um, reducing the use of pesticides, or using integrated pest management practices. Which are what? So to break that down a little bit. So basically it's Using pesticides when you need to, utilizing biological control agents, like if you've got aphids, you release some ladybugs, and so they are a natural predator of those aphids. So mixing these different practices together is an integrative pest management solution to um, some of the problems that you might see on your crops or that you might see in your own vegetable garden. And what it does is it reduces the stressors on the environment um, to make it healthier not only for you, because you're having less pesticides in your area, but also healthier for those pollinators, as well as other invertebrates that are, that are milling around in your backyard. Mm -hmm. um, some other things that you can do that is really simple is just leaving some of the brush and leaves that have collected over the winter or, or right before fall when you're going to clean up, leave those because that's critical habitat for some of the solitary pollinators as well as lots of other types of animals. So leaving sticks and leaves is leaving homes for lots of different types of animals, which is great. Um, and citizen science. Getting out there is one thing that I think is an amazing takeaway. Here in Colorado, we've got at Butterfly Pavilion the Urban Prairies Project, which is habitat restoration. As I mentioned before, Colorado Butterfly Monitoring. There's also um, larger projects like the Great Sunflower Project, which is really looking at invertebrates on sunflowers. Bumblebee Watch. There's Monarch Watch, Monarch Larval Monitoring Project, as it well gets as... It down to the basics. It and does. To the granular. Does. Uh -huh. But then also, just even here at CU, they've got the Bees Needs, which is a great program as well, looking at native bees. So there's Actually, I know in KGNU, I think we've had some um, bees homes for the Fantastic. Bees Needs. Fantastic, yeah. And we will put some of these links Absolutely. on our website later. So at the Butterfly Pavilion, though, what's the key project? The key project... For right? citizen science. 
Citizen Science, we've got the two projects. We've got Urban Prairies Project as well as the Colorado Butterfly Monitoring Project. So Urban Prairies is really focused on creating the habitat that's healthy and, um, and supportive of communities as well as, so human communities as well as pollinator and invertebrate communities. And, um, and then as I mentioned before, Colorado Butterfly Monitoring is really tracking the trends of butterflies in our state so that we understand what's going on. Um, and will allow us to make some good recommendations for land management practices. Well, thank you so much. We'll definitely be following the pollinators, and hopefully a lot more people will get out there and, if not chase them, count them. <laughs> That's Thanks so have. much for coming on the show. Thank you. That was Marianne Colley, Vice President of Science at the Butterfly Pavilion in Westminster. For more info, go to butterflies.org. If I was a flower growing wild and free, all I'd want is you to be my sweet honeybee. And if I was a tree growing tall and green, all I'd want is you to shade me and be my leaves. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Leslie Dodson. Joining us this morning is Dr. Heather Underwood, the co-founder and executive director of Denver Biolabs. That is the first community do-it-yourself biolab in Colorado. Denver Biolabs focuses on making synthetic biology accessible to everyone, and they do that by providing access to a community lab along with training in building biotools or learning lab fundamentals and experimenting with molecular gastronomy. Denver Biolabs also develops technologies related to bioinformatics, biomimicry, bio-inspired design, and bioprinting. We have a theme here, don't we? Along with launching Denver Biolabs, Heather Underwood is Associate Director at InWorks, a new interdisciplinary initiative at the University of Colorado Denver that trains students in human-centered design, innovation, and prototyping. So Heather, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you, Leslie. Heather, what the heck is do-it-yourself biology? So do-it-yourself biology is the idea that a lot of the tools, um, equipment that you need to do biology is often um, located in big labs at universities or in pharmaceutical companies and industry. So it's really bringing that to more of the masses. And you specialize in synthetic biology, but I don't think we, many of us don't understand what synthetic biology is. So synthetic biology is really about building molecular machines. So we have a lot of this technology now that allows you to take genes that express different kinds of proteins and characteristics and um, match them up with different genes so that you create novel organisms that ultimately express novel behavior. Um, but it's yeah. also quite interdisciplinary, right? This is where computer science and nanotech and biotech all kind of merge in a mashup. Right. Um, so the, the idea of building a molecular machine has a lot of um, parallels with electrical engineering and computer science engineering. Um, if you think about logic gates, how you link them all up to build circuits, it's very similar when you're thinking about building molecular machines. And what are some of the human problem problems that can be addressed through synthetic biology? Um, I think that creativity is the limit there. Um, basically, any human problem you can think of you can probably think of a synthetic biology solution for it. Now, not to put too fine a point on things, and I know Heather and her work, but you are a computer scientist by training. You are not a biologist or a, a chemist. So what inspired you to start Denver Biolabs? Um, so yes, I, am, I have no biology background, actually, no formal biology training. Um, so I get that question a lot. 
uh, it really comes from just not having the space and resources in Colorado to explore the potential of biotech um, and all of these interesting things coming out of bio. I spent a lot of time uh, in the Bay Area where I lived before I lived in Colorado, and they were really inspired by places like Berkeley Biolabs, BioCurious, Counterculture Labs, which were really driving this whole community DIY biolab forward. Um, and a very interdisciplinary uh, environment there, and we needed something like that in Colorado. So, so give us an example of some of the kinds of projects that are happening at, at Denver Biolabs. Yeah, uh, we've had a lot of different guest speakers uh, and people coming through our space. We've had artists um, from Redline Gallery in Denver wanting to come do things with photobacteria, photosensitive bacteria, to create living art. Um, we've had a company, a biotech company from Fort Collins, come talk to us about color changing flowers so they could actually change color throughout the day. Um, and we've had New Harvest come speak to us about cultured meat. So for all you vegans out there, it's a big, big movement right now. Um, and I, I know that yep. one of the main projects that are going on, that's going on there now is you and your team from Denver Biolabs are involved in iGEM. So that's the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition. So tell us a little bit about your oxytocin project. Right. So this is, this is the big project we're working on right now. Um, oxytocin is a drug that is administered uh, oftentimes to women in labor, um, both, both to uh, induce labor but also to prevent postpartum hemorrhage, which is one of the leading causes of maternal mortalities worldwide. Um, it has a very short half-life, and it requires refrigeration. So in places like Kenya and India, where I've done a lot of, um, a lot of my PhD work, uh, they can't keep oxytocin stocks um, around. So due to the infrastructure and all of that. So what we were trying to do is create a more stable form of oxytocin by making it less temperature sensitive. Um, we've played around with a lot of different ideas. Uh, the direction we're pursuing right now is actually more looking at a diagnostic tool to test the oxytocin stocks um, in existence to see if they're still good or not. So kind of looking, looking at that route first, sort of quality. Now, you also have a, a couple of working groups at Denver Biolabs, and I know one of them is the Health Devices Group, and they're working on a blood alcohol detector that can transmit data to a smartphone. But my understanding is that this project somehow involves wearable sensors, power tools, and blood. <laughs> um, yeah, sounds fun, right? Uh, we were actually working on this project last year um, as part of a competition that um, one of the subgroups of the NIH put out. Um, and we played around with a lot of different uh, techniques, but the fun, fun day was when we 3D printed the um, test tube holder um, using some of the equipment at Inworks, and then we actually used chicken blood uh, and titrated alcohol into various levels of chicken blood and spun it down using our drill press. Um, so yeah, we, we get creative to do biology. and. Um, so was, that sounds like fun. a drunk chicken experiment. Um, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but then you also are working on food science, and that this may be of interest to our morning radio listeners because you have been working on a scientifically derived recipe for French press coffee. Yeah, so this was a, a selfishly motivated experiment. Um, we basically wanted to teach people a little bit more about the scientific method, kind of get people really into that research mindset. Um, and so I picked the theme mostly because uh, I drink a lot of coffee. And so we did a bunch of different experiments, both uh, looking at the, f the granularity of the grains using different grinders, water retention, um, 
various kinds of um, acids and pH levels in the, the resulting coffee to try and try and get that perfect cup of coffee. Um, and then to top it all off, we built uh, or created agar caviar beads to put on top made out of honey, the oh. little molecular gastronomy there. <laughs> now, I want to back this up and take a look at some of the issues that are out there that perhaps link GMOs, genetically modified organisms, and genetic engineering, and what you're talking about is synthetic biology. So what are some of the ethical issues that you find that you have to wrestle with? Right. I think ethics comes up a lot um, around DIY biology and around biology in general, all the technology that's moving forward. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think it is very important to be aware of some of the implications and applications of this, uh, these technologies. Um, and experiments, but ultimately we're not going to stop the progression of this technology. Um, so I think it's imperative that we build a better educated public and teach them how to use these technologies correctly so that they can make better informed decisions about, about ethical issues surrounding these, these things. And, and does that explain the community focus? Because there are a lot of uh, research labs in the Denver area that are doing similar things. So why the community focus? Um, I think just the community is really interested and they see the potential um, of bio and I mean you look at the computer science movement and the crowdsourcing and just how you, we saw this huge boom in apps and all of these things that were just really exciting and innovative and I think biology is the next frontier in that. Thank you very much. We've been speaking with Dr. Heather Underwood, the co-founder and executive director of Denver Biolabs. Denver Biolabs offers workshops, boot camps, lab resources, and guest speakers. You can find out more at denverbiolabs.com. Thank you, Heather. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Shelley Schlender. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Susan Moran. And it was engineered by Maeve Conran. Additional contributions from Shelley Schlender, Beth Bennett, and Natalia Bayona. Our theme music was written and produced by Joss Cutler. Additional music from Lei Zhang and Barry Luis Polisar. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you could subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Leslie Dodson. And I'm Susan Moran. <laughs>